I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've got to make this guy feel that this is the most important place in the world. You know, one week, he's an MP in Luton, and now he's king of Northern Ireland. Michael Cameron left school with two O-levels. But this working-class boy would go on to become a key advisor to secretaries of state. You know, you're sitting in Hillsborough Castle on your own with the Secretary of State. And he's just talking away to you as if it's the most normal thing. And I'm shaking under the table because I literally cannot believe I'm in this place. In that role, he was dealing directly with loyalist and dissident Republican paramilitary leaderships. Well... Well, I know, I know for a fact that I save lives. He is married to DUP MLA Pam Cameron, but he doesn't always agree with her politics. He briefly joined the DUP, but didn't like what he saw. You know, when I went in the room, it was like people were, you know, uh, this week we should maybe pray for the sick. Now, I last heard that in church. It, it just turns me off. And then you've all this kind of social argument, which I didn't agree with. Michael Cameron is now a playwright, and I sat down with him on the set of his upcoming Christmas play at Newton Abbey's Theatre at the Mill to discuss his remarkable life. In 2001, you applied for a duplicate birth certificate and it transformed everything you thought you knew about your life. Take me back to what happened in that moment where you realised that something um, in your past was very different to what you expected it to be. I still probably struggle for words to this day, the effect that it had, because um, mine was a very normal, you know, working class housing estate family. We'd went on our holidays in Butlins and, and yeah, I had to go for a birth certificate, couldn't find it. You know, everybody has their old biscuit tin in the, with all the documents in it, so we searched this and... Um, went off to the registrar's office and they said, yeah, we'll get that for you. And then they rang and said, we can't find any trace of you. And I, they said, would you be adopted by any chance? And I said, no, not a chance, you know. Um, and I rang my mum and I said, look, these people are asking if I'm adopted. And my mum goes, oh, don't be ridiculous. And, and then a day or so later, they asked me to come in. Um, and I dutifully did. And a lady took me into a room and simply said to me, we've found your birth certificate, but it's on the adoption register. And that single sentence was uh, the fuse of lighting a very big <laughs> bomb under what I had known all my life. And it's much as I can say, you know, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, and you're, 
But, you know, when you think back on it real, all your aunties and your uncles and all this life that you've had, I mean, this is, I'm like 36. You know, most people I know who are adopted now that I've talked to were told when they were very young. It's very unusual for somebody to get to that age. And I remember just going home and pulling the curtains and sitting there and I couldn't, couldn't find words. It was completely tra- tra- traumatic to realise that this whole life that I had lived up to that point wasn't real. And when I did actually then try and talk to my mum, my dad and I passed away, but at that time I was talking to them both. It was this kind of real, this isn't happening, you know, if we don't talk about it. It's almost like they were protecting it. And I understand that. I, it was, I never had any ill will or any difficulty towards them, but I just found it difficult. And you do get some social services support and things like that to, to find out what your real name is and all these spectacular little hand grenades that they throw at you, you know, uh, every now and then. Um, I met my birth mum, which was again... She she'd said she didn't want any contact, but then I eventually met her. And after a few meetings, I realised that you know, fine, but it wasn't particularly going to... She didn't want me coming into her new life. So it was almost like you'd been rejected twice, you know, and that was really hard to take. Um, and, yeah, so in this world where you're just expecting, oh, don't talk about it. And we see so many of these... Instances now that when we cover these stories in the media, and particularly ones that go back in time to the churches and allegations of all that, it's like the culture was, don't talk about it. And that was very much what I grew up with. And sadly, it continued on even to like 36. Um, But the one thing it did make me do was really, it made me really sit down and challenge everything about myself. and I kind of thought, well, look, if all of my life to date has been a lie, I don't want the rest of it to be. It's taught me a lot about myself and human emotion, human reaction to everything, um, and basically life, that it's never, no matter what you look at, uh, look at someone and imagine what they are or who they are, you really don't know. So it's taught me a lot about me and how I approach other people and look at their lives and their stories, yeah. And take me back then to the childhood that you did have um, when you were growing up. East Belfast, working class area, middle of the Troubles. What was that like? Um, I was very sheltered from the Troubles until I moved to Bangor, funny enough, Um, where I was caught up in a couple of shootings and a bombing when they bombed Main Street in Bangor. Um, But East Belfast, essentially what seems to have happened is that, you know, my mum and dad lived in... Uh, Stramburn Drive. My parents then, with when the adoption thing happened, they decided to have a fresh start and move to Bangor. So my my recollection of East Belfast is is pure fondness. I still feel very attached to it. I kept revisiting it in my work when I was bringing ministers, and I always liked them to come to East Belfast and and see what it was like to live on estates and and things like that. So. You left school and stumbled, I think it's fair to say, into a career in the civil service. You found that having gone into this, um, uh, maybe not on a whim, but having gone into it um, out of school looking a job, you were actually pretty good at it, and you rose up the ranks, you became quite significant. Uh, What was was the civil service like? There's there's a particular 
public perception of the civil service is yeah. this big monolith, boring, uh, and yeah. people who earn good salaries and we're not quite sure what they do. Lots of people would think. Yeah. What what happens inside the machine? Um, I, I think people would probably be probably be right to have that uh, opinion about some of it. Not necessarily. I, I, for example, worked. Um, I came into it just after the Good Friday Agreement was signed. I always had been a political anorak, always fascinated by politics, and you know, literally within a few months of. Uh, beginning to work for Mark Durkin and he and David Trimble were... I, it was literally you were walking about with these people that you'd just seen on television. But I found it fascinating. And I, you know, from that point right through to my NO, NIO career, I was just living in this world of, God, I really love this. This is... And you were really involved in it, you know, it's quite a daunting thing when a secretary, of, there's only you and a secretary of state in a room and he says to you, what do you think I should do? And, and what I found was uh, the NIO had a lot of great, uh, very, very talented people. I, I, I was very honoured to work with them who came over from England again, but they didn't have quite the local knowledge and where I was able to kind of, well... Why don't we think about this and the effect that will have on that and what this community might think? And I didn't realise I was doing it, but what was happening was that my opinion was becoming more valued. But because I told them the truth, you've got to remember, a lot of civil servants, the last thing they want to do is tell ministers the truth. They don't want their world rocked. They don't want the earth to shake, they want it to be done the same way as it was, the same way as it was, and to carry on ad infinitum. And I remember talking to you around the time of RHI, and I, I do remember saying to you very clearly that when the dust settles in this, yes, there will be political fallout, but by God, you could be guaranteed that the civil service will have played a huge role in this. And to me, that's the downside of it. On one hand, you've got people breaking their backs all day long to work. And you've got other people on the other side who kind of seem to have, you know, the luck to make all these huge errors that cost the country millions and suddenly find themselves promoted. Or I just don't get that, you know. It's almost like there's a degree of non-accountability once you get to a certain element of it. But for me... I went from being Mark Durkin's private secretary to then being working for Paul Murphy as Secretary of State. And again, you know, you're sitting in Hillsborough Castle on your own with the Secretary of State. And he's just talking away to you as if it's the most normal thing. And I'm shaking under the table because I literally cannot believe I'm in this place. And if that was bad, imagine then when we went to London and you're sitting in the House of Commons can, can you explain for people who don't understand the civil service system what a private secretary is? Because you are physically in the room yeah. with the minister that you're serving. You're not a very senior civil servant. Yeah. You're sort of mid-ranking civil yeah. servant, but you're yeah. in a very powerful position there. So yeah. what, what sort of stuff do you do? What do you see that the public don't get to see? And how, how does that influence how politics operates? Um, you, you're basically responsible for organising every aspect of that minister's day from 
he gets up in the morning, he goes to bed at night, he, nothing he does is not arranged by you. And, uh, and that can work well. If you have good relationships, that can work well. If you don't get on with your minister, it's hell. But again, I was very fortunate. I had some real characters and that I worked for. Peter Hayne was great. And um, David Hansen, the late Paul Goggins. Labour men who I think, you know, you didn't really appreciate them until the Tories came in. And that was night and day. And I didn't, I thought the Tories would be something completely different. But they weren't, sadly. I think sadly for Northern Ireland as well. Because they had made their mind up from day one that they were out of here. The job was done and it was up to the local assembly. And in my view, they retreated too quickly. They dismantled everything too quickly. And, um, but that, that job basically, so the minister will ask you, he'll, you he'll, you'll read some of his speeches. He will ask you for advice on, should I do this event? Should I go to that event? All these kind of, but it, it makes the system work. And also it makes you get him where he needs to be seen most of all. And I think that, again, that visibility, that uh, accountability is important. And it, it, you, you've got to make this guy feel that this is the most important place in the world. You know, one week he's a, an MP in Luton and now he's king of Northern Ireland. And when, when you're a civil servant, you're part of this enormous bureaucracy, um, the biggest bureaucracy in the country, and it can feel very impersonal, like you're this tiny little cog, even if you're a very senior official, yeah. in this enormous machine where so much yeah. is beyond your control. What, when you look back at your civil service career, did you do um, any particular instance that you're proudest of or that you think was most consequential in terms of your decision-making? Um, well, well, I know, I know for a fact that I saved lives, and that involved... Near the end of my NO career, I had policy responsibility for paramilitaries, for dissident republicans, for parading. And that takes you into a whole different underworld. So I was the guy that was going to meet with the leaderships. And, and again, you know, that worked for me because they were expecting someone English. They are expecting someone from Oxford to come and give them a strategy, because they didn't have one themselves, really. And when I walked in, it was like, who's he? You know, oh, well. And I soon very, I was very quickly able to break down barriers. It literally got down to the fact that I was being phoned to say, here's your heads up as to where this device is. And on other occasions, um, I was phoned up by people saying, we know that such and such is going to be shot tonight by, and can you intervene? Can you talk to somebody? And I think, so on a very, that's why, I mean, it was just such a unique experience. You don't get that in many <laughs> civil service careers, but I like to think I built up enough trust with people that I was honest. There was no double tracking, double messaging tricks. It was like, I want this over as much as you do. So let me let me ask you about paramilitarism because you, you've you've raised a really interesting point there. So you you've given examples of where having access to the leaderships of paramilitary organisations yeah. or parts of the leaderships can save lives. Yeah. And we know that that happens even if we don't know the ins and outs of it. Some yeah. of those people do that because they're informers, they're paid by the police or whatever. Yeah. 
Others do it for all sorts of other reasons, um, some altruistic, some others. But that obviously is attractive to the government. There's a great public interest in saying, if we can save a life, we must save a life. Yeah. But isn't there a danger with that, that here we are 25, tw- almost heading on now for 26 years after the Good yeah. Friday Agreement, that these organisations have become embedded. Everybody yeah. knows who the leaders are. Nothing's ever done about it. The police appeal for information, put them behind bars. But the yeah. people in those estates know that the police aren't serious about that because yeah. they know who they are. And it becomes this farcical sort of Kafka-esque situation. Where, where did that go wrong? Um, I think what, what, what happened was that um, you had people like me in the NIO and others who'd been there for a long time and had built the relationships where you had, where then that, that suddenly, you know, someone sitting in the Department of Justice was then told, oh, from Monday, you're, you're our community engagement they, they didn't even know who to go and talk to. So it starts again. Process starts again. And some other poor sod is sitting being told, yes, we're going to dismantle everything. And we're, you know, I look back to things like the huge row that Margaret Ritchie had over, you know, giving money for transformation. That was to loyalist groups, to just loyalist for people groups, who haven't, yeah. Which went ahead. In terms of, your, you're saying that there is this fundamental brokenness in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And nationalists will say, with some degree of um, yeah. quite considerable logic behind it, look, we've tried all of these things yeah. and they haven't worked. Why not give this other thing a go? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, all of the politicians that I know were, were elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly. You know, they weren't elected to be, uh, you know, a, a vehicle towards a united Ireland nor were they elected to be a vehicle towards the union. You know, they were elected to sit in the assembly. And that means to work for the people of Northern Ireland on all sides. And so when I met Pam, who's my second wife, obviously I, you know, that story's been told. But, but essentially, she challenged me to say, if you're not... You say all these things, but if you're not willing to roll up... You know, I felt I'd done a, quite a lot of rolling up of sleeves up to that point in the NIO, but because of my interest in politics, she said, you know, if, if you broadly support the union and things like that, and um, then you, you, you should get involved. And so I, so I did. I said, OK, that's a, fair, that's a fair question. So I went along with her to some branch meetings... It, it, and things like that. And this is, again, it's just the thing. People were really nice, but the procedures and the, and the, the, the policies and the way things are discussed and managed were like dark ages, you know. And I don't mean that, as, I don't want that portrayed as this is a part, this is like, you know, when I went in the room, it was like people were, you know, uh, this week we should maybe pray for the sick. Now, I last heard that in church. It, it just turns me off. And then you've all this kind of social arguments, which I didn't agree with. So I found the unionism was getting watered down because of, of the kind of social issues on, on which view, on, on the views that were being taken. And by the way, not everybody had those views. So but the problem was you weren't allowed to say. So... And it's rightly so. A party is nothing without discipline. So if the party decides 
then that's the policy, that's the decision. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, this place clearly is not working. Um, personally, I don't think the answer to that is a United Ireland. Um, but equally, equally, I'm also waiting for this, somebody to break forth the banners and champagne of what's great about the union. You know, you're, you're wanting to be inspired. Yeah, because I mean, I personally do. I love, I do love. I mean, I wrote a play about Carson, and I didn't know a lot about Carson until I started researching it. And um, I really like Carson's view of an all Ireland, you know, within the union, within the Commonwealth. I'm sure there will be some historians will put me right on that, but that's what I took away. He wasn't wanting what it was portrayed as being. Mm. And neither do I. Why, why does it have to be one or the other? You know, why can we not just be this place that is so good to live, nobody wants to leave it? People were voted... I hear people talking about the Good Friday Agreement and stuff like that. It worries me slightly that on the national side of politics we hear less talk about Good Friday Agreements and stuff like that, more about United Ireland... I don't think necessarily that sits well with a lot of people. And I don't think, you know, if unionists do have to have kind of friends and persuaders and things like that, who else can do that, you know? You're married to Pam Cameron, the South Antrim DUP MLA. What, what is it like being married to an MLA these days where there obviously isn't an assembly yeah. functioning and in general, even when politics does work here? Uh, it's, it's horrendous. It's not something I would encourage people to do. I mean, I would have married Pam if she'd been working in Asda. The fact is that we met through our work and, um, you know, I have no issue standing over all that happened. Was, yes, people got hurt, but, you know, in the greater scheme of things, we were very real and genuine, you know. Um, and I think she's a lovely person. She's a really caring person. And she uh, is almost at the minute at times where as a politician, she's afraid to go out in public. I'll give you an example of that. We went to a wedding a couple of months ago. And the wedding happened during the day. And I went home because of health conditions, so I left early. But Pam and some of her friends came home on the bus with the rest of the crew. So she's just sitting there, having been at a wedding, having had a lovely day. And this guy got up and came over and got into her face, get you back to your effing work. I pay your effing wages, you know, in front of a whole bus full of people. And, you know, it just... There's no words to describe how you would feel about your wife being treated like that. And yet, and yet, you can't really say anything back because you're, you're simply giving them the fight that they want. And Pam, I mean, I couldn't, um, despite my love, despite the fact that I always would have loved to be Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, 
uh, with even less qualification than I had for the NO. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I'd have punched too many people on the canvas and been disbarred and quite probably arrested. Now, don't get me wrong, there are a handful of politicians in Northern Ireland I think should be, probably be punched on a regular basis. Um, but the great, the great body of them want to do their job. And, you know, people talk about money and they get money and all of this stuff. People don't understand that. They think the whole office costs things. But even when you get into those arguments, you get criticised. It's like social media, pile on, how dare you, if you get back to your work, blah, blah. And then the next week, oh, can you get me a house? Can you help me do this passport? Can you... And it's like, you know, and then you'll... In this current... I think this this current one is... It's difficult because there seem to be quite a lot of unionist people support the the not going back into government. But I I just think, look, I get that. But you need to draw a line in the sand. I, do, you, do, you, do you debate about politics? Oh, then? yeah, we do. But we kind of have a rule now where we stop at the first bottle because after that it gets dangerous. No, we did. We had a lot of these stuff and everybody who comes to our house and now they want to talk politics and that's like for Pam, it's being at work. So we tried to navigate around not having political debates. But I think people want to know what's going on and things like that. There's a curiosity. So I knew what Pam was. Pam's been involved with the DUP since, you know, her her teens. And that's what she was. Um, I suppose one of the things that actually really... <laughs> I couldn't believe she was a member of the DUP because she wasn't what I expected in terms of... of you know, how we met was that someone rang me and asked me that the mayor of Antrim wanted a royal visit and could I help? And I just thought that's going to be some old DUP bag from up the country somewhere. You know, I'm not... And then I googled who she was. Oh, my God. You know, um, and uh, she was young and she was funny and friendly and, and things like that. And we just, over a short period of time, got got so, so close. But we don't agree on politics. And again, it's very strange. I mean, having said that, I, of course I'm saying I'm probably unionist in my, my outlookings, but I love Irish culture. I love all I read non-stop poetry. I feel that, you know, so much. I feel the heart when people tell me that's... I felt really hurt, actually, when I think it was um, Colin Meeswood said that we couldn't celebrate Seamus Heaney as part of the... I think, how dare you? I mean, how dare you tell me that I'm not allowed to celebrate a poet? That he's yours, you know, and I'm not one of you, so I can't celebrate it. And I thought, you know, I know people in the SDLP probably were felt as bad as I did at that point. But that, sh- that shows me, you know, where does this stop, you know? But to go back to your point, I feel a lot of the time that I can adapt to where I am. I'm very comfortable. I'm very easy company. I love talking to Irish people in the theatres and musicians, and I get a lot out of it. And 
you know, um, I think Irish Irish has also all, has has done a very good job in promoting its culture, whereas unionism hasn't. Um, and so that's where we kind of differ: is that Pam would still broadly be down this DUP, you know, the union is everything, and blah blah blah, and all of that. But it doesn't define her. It doesn't. That's not what she is as a full-time person. You know, she is a wife and a mom, and I just really admire her for what she's doing. But no, I I don't know many other politicians who are married but and have different views. But we've just had to manage that, and the relationship's more important than the politics. You left the civil service in about 2017 uh, for ill health reasons. Yeah. You then stumble into this second extraordinary career yes. where you become a playwright. Yeah. Uh, you did that to an extent with assistance uh, from this very famous actor, playwright, yeah. director, Sam McCready, uh, who also, when I looked him up, had been a civil servant. I hadn't realised yeah. that in, yeah. the, in the early part of his career. How on earth did that happen? He came from Belfast, but he'd been living in America for decades. Yeah. Um, basically, when I when I left work, I thought I'm only 50. Um, I didn't get ill health retirement because I didn't meet the criteria at the time. So I was basically left jobless and thought, what am I going to do? And I began just writing a blog for pleasure. And I got, I got really into the story of Ruby Murray, of all people. And this is why I believe, you see, we've got to look at wider things because there's stuff happening that we need to do. So I'd written this little blog about Ruby Murray and a friend of mine who was a musician said, literally she said, you know, that'd be a great play. Um, I know a wee man who does a bit of theatre and I'm sure he would talk to you about it. So of course, knowing nothing, I, I emailed him what I'd written. And I made the mistake of emailing first and Googling him second, because if I'd, if I'd Googled him, I would never have sent the email. I was mortified. I was hoping for every kind of technical breakdown in the, in the web universe, that this email would not reach this man. And lo and behold, it reached him. And he said, you've got a great story here. This is a great story. He says, I will show you how to develop that into a play. And he did. But again, I thought I was the only... But of course, when his memorial service came up, it turned up, he, he's, he's done this for everybody. You know, Brian Keenan, the hostage, was one of his pupils. You know, um, Gerald Daw, great writer, another one. Jackie Redpath, I think, from the Shankle, another connection. So you can see that the, the tree of MacReady spreads, spreads far, far and wide. And I'm thinking... Why in God's name did someone in unionism not take this man to one side and say, help us tell our story or help us, you know, we don't really know what we want to do, but, you know, I just think that's what I would like to do. And I don't mean just for unionism, but that's what I, I love writing. I love being in a theatre and watching people's responses because it's an instant response. You know whether you've got it right or not. But ultimately, I love the conversations that come forward after the shows when you get to talk to people. And, and I think the arts is a great way. You know, there's a lot of Republicans 
who did time in the maze and have gone on to be writers. And they tell great stories and they're telling them about their own history and their own past. And, and I think that's great. Isn't it far better going to a theatre to watch something rather than reading it on the news about a tragedy? So I think for our kids and stuff, you know, theatre and the arts are a great way, but unfortunately nobody's interested. And you say that nobody's interested, and I think you're talking about politics there and you're talking yeah. about wider society, but there certainly were people interested in going to see your plays because oh, yeah, you yeah. sold out the Lyric Theatre. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what, what does that feel like the first time that you do it? You've left school, I think, with a couple yeah. of O-levels. You've gone into the civil service. Late in life, you've had this career change. It's not yeah. very many people get to do that. It's a life I never expected to have. I, was, I, say, I think I'm still in my apprenticeship of it. You know, I think I'm starting to now feel to get the hang of what I'm doing. I think Ruby was extraordinary because the play, the play had sold out before anyone had seen it, which doesn't happen. And I don't think I just, I, don't, I, I just thought this was what, what it was like for every play, um, that it just sold out and it was... And it was astonishing. The reaction to it was astonishing. And um, I remember just sitting up at the back of the lyric and literally shaking the way I was in the Secretary of State's office that I couldn't believe this had happened. Um, and it was such a buzz, such a buzz to finally think, you know, when you're an advisor or when you're a a private sector, whatever, you, you do the work, but somebody else gets the credit because they read the speech or they do the, make the announcement. You've, you've no public profile. And what's, what's the state of the arts in Northern Ireland right now? Because there, there is a sense that some people have that arts, when Stormont was functioning, and obviously we yeah. don't even have Stormont at the moment, but even when it was functioning, was essentially the DUP looking um, arts funding for a flute band, yeah. Sinn Féin looking arts funding for the Irish language, yeah. and um, people who were outside of certain categories found it very hard to, yeah. um, to uh, make ends meet there. What is, um, you, I mean, you, you, you've said in the past, I think, that it distresses you how little so many of our politicians um, yeah. care about the arts, how much direct interest they have in it. Yeah. Is, that, is that getting better? Is it getting worse? Where, where are we now? I think it's never been worse. And I'm, I'm a latecomer to it. But it's, uh, I don't think the public would realise how frighteningly close theatres and actors, you know, are, are, are so close to actually not being able to do it anymore. Some shows can be put on very cheaply and others cost a lot of money. Now, I'm very unhappy about it because we just had a couple of guys, writers from East Belfast, win an Oscar. Same place as Sam McCready came from, same place as I came from. You know, James Martin and Seamus O'Hara. Four guys. Now, every time they go to a dinner, there's politicians queuing up to get their pictures taken with them because they love it. This is great. I need to get a picture. Get me a picture. Come to a meeting about the arts. Oh, I'm a bit, bit, bit busy, you know. And, and the, the, the Arts Council here for me is another organisation which needs a review. Finally, what are your ambitions as you look to the next years of this career that you have? Uh, unfortunately, I've got a few health conditions which have decided to kind of de degenerate uh, at a fairly quick pace. 
So that literally is that uh, I know that the future will not be as long for me as it, it might have been. Not that any of us can take a guaranteed day. Um, what I really want to do is I want to begin, you know, just really pushing myself as a writer and exploring more of what I've got inside me, the stories that I've got inside me, to continue to work with these great professionals, you know. And, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I had a, now that I've tasted a bit of, you know, success in it, that I'm ambitious for more of that. Um, or, or to be part of it, shall I say, in, in terms of the arts in Northern Ireland. I mean, I'm still interested in politics, you know, I still think there's the odd time I'd love to go on as a panellist. I, I just really, I, I just, I'm really enjoying finally being myself. I came into this thing, I'm not going to have any stress. A, a lifetime of stress, this is going to be fun, and that's what I'm trying to make it for everybody who's part of it. So far it's working. Michael Cameron, thank you very much. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.